to answer your question regarding insurance, it, it's inexplicable and I can only relate it to lack of brain cells on the part of the, ju of the judge. Uh, it, it just made no sense. It continues to make no sense. And it became a bit of the linchpin after we got the verdict. Hi, this is John at InsuranceRadio.com. On this episode, we have the astonishing true crime drama of murder surrounding life insurance proceeds from the man who was at the center of it all, attorney and author Joel Schwartz. In his newly released book, Bone Deep, he provides shocking insights regarding the actual murderer of Betsy Faria and the conviction and later acquittal of his client, Russ Faria. This suspicious woman named Pam Hupp who was going to get the insurance proceeds. Well, obviously, some alarm went off in my head. That, that in and of itself is unusual. The policy that was changed four days before was merely in Pam Hupp's name. It was done at a library on a form you can get online and there was no notary. Additionally, there was no contingent beneficiaries and Betsy's zip code was incorrect. And I found that to be very curious. The state filed that motion to keep me from mentioning the Pam Hupp insurance, the inconsistencies that she was selling or anything indicating that Pam had anything to do with it because they claimed there was no, what they call in the Missouri law, a direct connection. With Pam Hupp, I don't know what more you could possibly have shown regarding indirect connection. Any of the factors I've discussed is enough. You may be familiar with this story that has exploded on the national scene, but you've never heard it quite like this. John Benet Ramsey and O.J. Simpson had three episodes. As of two Fridays ago, we completed and aired the sixth episode regarding this. And it was the highest rated Dateline, and Sunday told me in like two decades. NBC's number one new show season the pilot episode ranks as NBC's top digital launch in network history. The appetite of the public for this is sensational. We are thrilled to have Joel Schwartz, attorney and author of Bone Deep, with us today. Joel is the defense attorney for Russ Faria and the Betsy Faria murder trial. This is a fascinating case that at its very core is about insurance, insurance proceeds, insurance fraud, insurance abuse. And before we get talking about the actual case, Joel, I would appreciate it if you would give the audience an idea of your background before you share your behind the scenes look in bone deep on the Betsy Faria murder trial. How did you get into law? I started out attended college at UCLA. Ultimately, I left there after a year uh, only because I had learned that I could get another quality education at a similar institution, which was University of Texas. And I liked being in the college town, I realized. So I transferred there, ended up staying for law school after graduation for two reasons. I, um, number one, loved Austin and wanted to stay and I couldn't figure out an excuse. I had job offers that I necessarily did not want to take and they were not within Austin. I was deciding between law school and business school and frankly, law school was a year longer. So I decided to go to law school with no intention of ever practicing law. I decided I finished law school, I might as well take the bar. So I took the bar. The day after the bar, I went to Los Angeles to be discovered and make my active career. I spent about almost two years in Los Angeles essentially waiting tables, starting to make some progress, go a little further in auditions. I thought maybe I was getting noticed. And then in 1989, there was a writer's strike and the writer's strike went on 
and on internally until um, I think it was in August, I decided, you know what, I'm no longer a struggling actor. I'm just an, un, I'm just an unlicensed or licensed lawyer waiting tables. I need to maybe make a move. And I'd gone home, which was St. Louis, to visit for a couple of weeks and think about things. And while I was home, I ran into a friend who was in the middle of a murder trial. And it was happenstance. And he said, just, why don't you come watch this? So I, I went the next day and I watched his trial for a few days. And I enjoyed what he was doing in that. It seemed like something that was interesting, that was challenging. And if you do it well, you have an opportunity to make a decent living. So he had called the public defender's office. They gave me an offer, which was on the spot, which was a bit shocking. And uh, ultimately, I decided I would do it and I would try it for a year to see how things went and see if I enjoyed it. Well, that was 1989. And now it's 2022. And here I am still doing the same thing. And I enjoy it still. So in 2011, I had been at it for 20 something years at that point in time. And I got a call one night from a woman named Mary Anderson. Now, Mary had been a secretary at a firm I had worked with briefly when I came out of law school back in 19, I'm sorry, when I came out of the public defender's office back in 1991. And she had called me regarding her cousin, Russ Faria. I had seen it on the news. It was uh, relatively big news at the time. This man was charged with stabbing his wife and she was stabbed over 50 times. From what I had recalled at the time, there was blood all over him and he had confessed to the murder. Uh, those things were incorrect, but that was my recollection. And I thought I was maybe just coming in for some damage control. But I met with Mary the next morning. She told me everything about Russ. She said, there's no way my cousin could have done this. And she started to talk about why he couldn't have done it. And then she started to talk about this suspicious woman named Pam Hupp, who was going to get the insurance proceeds. Well, obviously, some alarm went off in my head. That, that in and of itself is unusual. Uh, so I drove up to meet Russ. It's about 50 minutes up to Lincoln County. I met and I spoke with Russ. And Russ had told me that he cooperated with the police and he had told them absolutely everything to my chagrin. Hmm. As I spent more and more time with Russ that day, it was a long, long meeting. He told me what everything meant. And I had come to learn that while Russ was in custody, the police went and verified what he had told them, that he had left his house approximately five o'clock on his way to his friend's house. Every Tuesday night, he and usually five other friends would get together and play a board game. It was entertainment. It was fun. It was cheap. This particular night, one of the individuals couldn't make it. And so they watch movies. On the way there, he had stopped at the gas station. He stopped to pick up some cigarettes. His wife had texted him to pick up dog food, which he had done. And the police had confirmed all these things with the stations, got him on videotape in the exact same clothes that he was arrested in that night. They had interviewed the alibi witnesses, all four of them, twice. They had done it separately in four separate police stations on videotape. And they all confirmed that West was with them that night. He left at nine o'clock. There was then a Arby's receipt crumpled up in the back of his car, showing that he had pulled up to the Arby's, which was near where the alibi witness lived at 9.09 p.m. He then, the next thing we know about, he had made a 911 call at 9.40 while timing the call from the Arby's to his house was a solid 30 minutes, showing he would have arrived home at 9.39, saw his wife brutally murdered and called 911. 
his entire story fit into place. After he and I had talked about this, I went, I confirmed everything he had told me and couldn't figure out how it was even possible, much less provable, that he had committed this murder. And I knew at the time, based upon my history, my reputation in the community, my ability to communicate with people, that I would sit down with this youngish prosecutor and be able to explain to her that she has been buffaloed by somebody, and I'm not sure who, probably the police, and pushed into these charges where it's simply not provable. And I knew that the case would be dismissed in a matter of weeks. Well, as it turns out, I couldn't have been more wrong. My conversation with this prosecutor seemed to cement her belief in some way, shape, or form that Russ had committed this brutal crime. And I continue to investigate it. And then I found out about this woman, Pam Huff. As I went through the discovery, it became painfully obvious to me that Pam, at the very least, had something to do with the murder or had committed herself. And not to go too deep a dive, but the next morning, the police went to see her. It turns out that she was the last one with Betsy that night. She, we know she was with Betsy at 727 because I checked the cell site and she had made a call at 727 to Betsy and she was still at or near the house at the time. The police, when they arrived, they looked at her phone and they asked her where she was when she made that call. The first thing she said to the police was, well, I called Betsy to let her know that I was home safe. Over the course of the conversation, that phone call became, well, I meant I was home free. And then she described the area she was. And then it became, well, I meant I was still in Troy, all of which were lies because my cell site, uh, the sector showed that she was still north of Troy and still could have actually been in the house with Betsy. Additionally, the police asked her initially if she had gone inside. And remember, this is approximately eight hours after they found this person who she termed her best friend. Her initial answer was no, I never went in the house. Over the course of that interview, it changed to, well, I went inside, uh, Betsy turned on the living room light, and then I hung out with her for about 30 minutes. Again, as the interview evolved, she was in there for 30 minutes. She turned on the living room light, not Betsy. And she continued to say lie after lie. For example, where was Betsy when you last saw her? Well, she was curled up on the couch under a blanket. When she was re-interviewed and I did the deposition of her, the last time she saw Betsy was she was standing at the door waving goodbye. Finally, we found out about the insurance, which is sort of the linchpin of this entire case. Betsy had, for some strange reason, taken her husband, Russ Faria, off as the beneficiary four days before she was brutally murdered. And, and under what I would call suspicious circumstances, made Pam the beneficiary. And it was a, a witnessed by a librarian. Now, Betsy and Pam Hub had met and both worked in the insurance industry 10 years prior. Pam, consequently, had been fired from two insurance jobs for alleged forgeries, although they were never actually proven. She was accused of them. They never proved them. So she was fired. And those are the remedies that were taken. So they both knew about the insurance industry. And curiously enough, Betsy had had three policies, one through work and two other policies that they had purchased. On both policies, she on all three policies to that time, she had a primary beneficiary who was Russ, and it had been that way for 11 years. 
She had contingent beneficiaries on each of the other policies, which as we all know is normal. And they were all notarized to her signature. The policy that was changed four days before was merely in Pam Huff's name. It was done at a library on a form you can get online and there was no notary. Additionally, there was no contingent beneficiaries and Betsy's zip code was incorrect. But I found that to be very curious. With all that, the lead detective contacted the insurance company, one of the leading insurance companies in the country, and they had no qualms about it. They did talk to Pam. She gave them conflicting stories, not only to them, but conflicting with, with each other and with what was in the police report, yet they paid the full benefits of the policy. At Prior to trial, the state of Missouri had filed what I thought was a garbage motion to keep on any mention of Pam Hupp, any mention of the insurance, and to keep out what was called prior inconsistent statements of Pam Hupp. For example, where she was at 727. And I say that number for several reasons. One is because we know Pam made a call at that time, but also because we know Betsy missed three calls between 721 and 730 from her daughter that she had promised to answer. Given that when the first responders showed up, they found Betsy's body to be cold and stiff and a large pool of blood was drying or almost dry. That indicated to them with their years of experience that she had been dead for some two and a half hours, which would put it right about the time that we could show Pam was still there. Nevertheless, the court ruled that I couldn't get into any of the proceeds of the insurance policy and Pam being the beneficiary nor the change of beneficiary. I couldn't get into her inconsistent statements about whether or not she went in the house, about who turned the light on, about where she was when she last saw Betsy. Um, and when I say lies, that is the tip of the iceberg. It's about 100 of them. Joel, I was going over your book again this morning, and something jumped out to me. Uh, the fact that Pam, in her interview with the police, said she was in the kitchen, uh, that she had turned the light on in the kitchen, which is exactly where you'd find a kitchen knife, which is what Betsy was killed with. So she, she placed herself at the time of the murder, uh, in the location of the murder, in proximity to the murder weapon. And I don't want to give away all the details of this incredible story. I want to tell as much or as little as, as you'd like. It's stunning in the fact that you were not allowed to bring these facts into the case. It is almost completely unrealistic and unbelievable, and yet it's one of the most successful Datelines uh, and an NBC miniseries featuring Renee Zellweger. John Benet Ramsey and O.J. Simpson had three episodes. As of two Fridays ago, we completed and aired the sixth episode regarding this, and it was the highest rated Dateline, and some they told me in like two decades. The appetite of the public for this is insatiable. Uh, the miniseries, I just got notified this morning, was the highest rated, uh, let me look to be exact. It's in NBC's number one new show of the season. The pilot episode ranks as NBC's top digital launch in network history. Um, and it continues to go because people continue to watch it. It's amazing. 14 million viewers since it first aired. Time and again, and reading the story, it was, it was unbelievable. You know, a prosecutor wouldn't do that. A judge wouldn't allow this. There's no way this, this would happen in real life. And it did. It would never happen, and it should never happen. And it did happen. I, uh, I gave the manuscript of our book before it was published to my uncle, who's extremely well-read. 
And he read it in the night and he called me and said, Joel, had this been fiction, I would have put it down after 100 pages because it's simply not believable. It's not realistic. But I know it's true. I know you lived it and everyone else around here who has seen all the publicity and knows everything in it that's true. And it's the Murphy's Law of the legal system. There are stop gaps in place to keep this thing from happening. The police who conduct an investigation, and in this particular case, they called out what's called the major case squad. And these are supposed to be the best of the best. There was not an officer that would step back and say to the rest of the team, hold on, wait a minute. We need to look at this woman, Pam Hub. She continues to tell lies. She got the benefits of the insurance proceeds. And she was the last one with her. Not to mention that she didn't show up back on the scene. Now, Betsy and her had known each other for 10 years. Pam didn't reemerge. And if I didn't mention it, until Betsy was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And then Pam showed up and became her best friend again. And I don't know how or why some officer didn't say, you know what, maybe we don't have anything there, but we at least, least need to take a look at this woman who got the insurance proceeds. Even if that's all there was, and she wasn't with her that day, you take a look at her to see if she hired somebody, if she had something to do with it. Because as you all know, being in the insurance business, that's a heck of a motive. Well, she clearly had the motive. And anytime they brought it up to her, she said $150,000. And that's not much money to me in my world. Well, the fact is she was behind on her mortgage. She couldn't afford health insurance. So $150,000, I don't care who you are, you know, unless you're Bill Gates, or, it's a heck of a lot of money. At any rate, they never investigated her. But your next stopgap now is the prosecutor. The prosecutor is somebody who's going to take it and say, look, there's not enough evidence here. I'm not going to be able to prove this. Or take a look at this other person because I don't want the defense attorney to be able to use that individual as a scapegoat in order to free this person who we think did or may think, think may have done. Well, not only did the prosecutor jump in with both feet, she had them go execute another search, which became the subject and their probable cause after major case squad had disbanded. What they said was they had conducted a search of the residence. They had seen a trail of blood to the towel drawer in the kitchen, to the mop closet, to the door where the dog had been located and back to where the, uh, there were some bloody slippers of Russes, and I'll get into that later, that were found in the back bedroom. They said it was like a trail, like gingerbread, and they took photographs of the trail, but unfortunately, the pictures, the camera malfunctioned and the pictures failed to develop. And that was unfortunate. And unfortunately, I didn't find out about it Neither they, they searched the pictures or the camera malfunction until the middle of the first trial. In Missouri, that's not how it works. You turn those things over and any exculpatory evidence you need to give to them. And had I done, had they done that, I would have had the camera examined. As it turned out, uh, I think your viewers know that, well, what happened is Russ got convicted and we'll get back to the photos in a little bit. But so the prosecutor becomes your stopgap. That didn't fail. That didn't function. The next stop yet becomes the courtroom. You get a judge, the judge is unbiased, the judge is fair. And as long as you have an attorney who knows what they're doing, and I like to think that I do, you're going to be able to at least get a semblance of a fair trial. Well, in this particular case, the state filed that motion to keep me from mentioning the Pam Hub insurance, the inconsistencies that she was selling, or anything indicating that Pam had anything to do with it because they claimed 
there was no what they call in the Missouri law a direct connection. Essentially, you have to show some connection to the individual who you are making that accusation of. For example, if there is a, a rape that goes on on street A, and I can show that a person was convicted and is out on parole who lives on street C, and that's all I can show, that's not a direct connection. But if I can show that somebody saw that person looking in the window, walking by the house, that there was a relationship between the two, then I have enough to at least make that loose direct connection to put it in front of the jury. With Pam Hupp, it I, I don't know what more you could possibly have shown regarding a direct connection. Any of the factors I've discussed is enough. By combining them, it's not only a direct connection, it makes it likely that she has something to do with this. However, I couldn't believe it, but the judge ruled against me. So I was realizing what I was up against there. However, they still weren't going to be able to prove that Russ Faria had committed the murder. In the book, you talk about the fact that most of the time it is the spouse, you know, whether it's the husband or the wife. But looking at the evidence, looking at the insurance proceeds and, and her being there and all of the direct connections that point to Pam Hub, I, I can't make this make sense. How do you disallow all of that evidence, almost conspiratorially, to point to Rusferia? It's an excellent question that I can't answer. Um, okay. The judge couldn't have been more wrong. There is a limit to cross-examination, and there's case law on that. Essentially, it says that the court can limit the scope of cross-examination. As far as relevance, for example, if you're testifying and I'm cross-examining you, and I found out that when you were in sixth grade, you got called to the principal's office for fighting, and you say, I'm never violent. I can't get into what happened to you in sixth grade if you're now 40 years old or 50 years old. It's just not relevant. Or you threatened somebody when you were three. And it's, again, it's an extreme example, but it's not relevant. So they brought that case to the court. And it was one case. And it was about six pages long. I furnished the court purposely with 100 cases to show her she was wrong. And I went to the extreme to stack them as the state was making the argument uh, regarding the direct connection to the point where as she was talking to us and making a ruling, the judge could no longer see us because she was speaking to a wall of paper. And it got to the point where I was being somewhat insolent. I was being rude. I was being a bit dismissive. Uh, it was actually, it got to where I, I figured at some point she was going to lock me up. And um, Fortunately, I suppose that never occurred. Uh, to answer your question regarding insurance, it, it's inexplicable, and I can only relate it to lack of brain cells on the part of the, ju of the judge. Uh, it, it just made no sense. It continues to make no sense. And it became a bit of the linchpin after we got the verdict, because that's our fourth stopgap. Although failing to hear any evidence whatsoever that Russ could have done it, and how he could have logically done it. The, the prosecutors told a story that was a fairy tale. She accused the alibi witnesses of being involved. She said one of the alibi witnesses, he kept his phone there, and one of the alibi witnesses took his phone and drove through Arby's and got the receipt, and then drove the receipt along with his cell phone back to him and apparently crumbled up the receipt, threw it in his car, knowing, of course, that the detectives would find it in his vehicle, and then took off and went home. And, and that was based upon absolutely nothing. So... As we move forward, I filed my 
motion for new trial. I filed my appeal and then I filed something called a Mooney motion based upon newly discovered evidence regarding Pam Hupp and the insurance proceeds and things she had done. First of all, a Mooney motion had only been granted in the state of Missouri twice before this in the 200 plus years that Missouri's been a state. But not only did they grant it, this rare motion, they did not even wait for a response from the state. The Court of Appeals, and I've never seen anything like that. The Court of Appeals just took what I said and then sent it back for a new trial. Wow. At that point in time, the original judge recused herself saying she had a conflict of interest. To this day, I don't know what that conflict was. Um, part of the allegation in my Mooney motion was that the prosecutor had an affair with the lead detective, which is maybe why the lead detective didn't take care of his responsibilities that he was supposed to do because they would have hurt their case. Nevertheless, she recused herself because my guess is she had knowledge of that affair that had gone on. Anyway, I got a, a judge from a nearby county called Pike County, and I disqualified that judge. You get one bite of that apple. And then they named another judge who was experienced, who was fair, who'd been around for 20 years. And I got a wild hair and I thought to myself, I don't trust these juries. I know of too many murder convictions that have been overturned because of these Lincoln County juries. And I don't know what's going on. And I, I, I took a wild stab and I, I did something very risky. Uh, I talked to my client, Russ, about it. And we decided to let the judge make the decision and go with a bench trial. Yeah, that was a gutsy move. It was an extremely gutsy move. Obviously, all's well that ends well in hindsight <laughs> 2020 and any cliches you want to use. Uh, as people who've seen the move this series and people who are listening can figure out, uh, ultimately it worked out. The judge allowed in all the evidence. He allowed in all the information regarding Pam Hupp, including the insurance. And there's a couple of new things that came about. Our second trial, by the way, uh, to overturn a murder conviction in the state of Missouri, the average is 10 years up to 14 years. Not only were we overturned, but we were in trial in less than two years. So it had been overturned in a short term of time. We set a new trial date and we were a go. That was in November of 2015 for the second trial. In August of 2015, I received a CD from the Lincoln County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. I opened it up, and if your listeners recall, I spoke about those photographs of the blood trail that didn't develop. Well, in doing so, what happened is the photos did develop, and there was no malfunction of the camera, and there was no blood trail of any kind whatsoever. So everything that officer testified to was nothing but an out-and-out -out lie. It was perjury. I still, to this day, it, it amazes me the lengths people will go to get a conviction because they, I don't know if they actually think it's right or it's simply about winning. We got to trial and as we started the trial, the prosecutor made the same opening statement that the camera malfunctioned, the pictures didn't develop and this officer would testify about the trail. He thought I leaned over to my co-consul and I realized she has no idea that we have these photographs. There had to be some whistleblower in that office that found the CD and mailed them to me anonymously. And not only did she not know, nor did the officer, because he testified the same way in the second trial. Another thing that became interesting was 
in the first interview the next morning after the murder, the police talked to Pam Huff. As we discussed, in addition to all the lies she told, she kept directing the police to what she referred to, and I refer to it the way she did each time. If you could just find this, Betsy was talking about an email she was going to send me. I mean, a document. And every time Pam mentioned it, she said she was going to give me this email. Maybe I think it was a document. It changed every single time. And they looked, but they didn't find it. Well, prior to the second trial, actually 10 days before the second trial, they found the document. It was in Betsy's laptop and her documents. That was their smoking gun. They were now going to get Russ because it was threats that Russ had told Betsy and this was Betsy emailing him to Pam. And at the end, it concluded, if something happens to me, please show this document to the police. Well, so I had my computer expert take a look at it. The expert was able to testify. It was written the day before Betsy allegedly knew about it, or Pam allegedly knew about anything about the insurance proceeds. It was allegedly written at the tennis club where Betsy was playing tennis while Pam happened to be there watching her with access to her computer. It could not possibly have been composed on that computer because that program to create it was not contained within that computer. It was uploaded while Pam was with her at the tennis club. During the course of the interview the next morning, Pam told the detectives her understanding of everything that would be in the document, and she nailed it on the head. She didn't miss a line. She knew everything that was in the document. And so I was able to prove that Betsy couldn't have written it. And I think we all know who wrote it. I'll jump forward because that, I think, will be something that certainly comes back to haunt Pam. So as we fast forward, all that evidence comes in. The judge comes out and his exact quote is as they showed in the miniseries. This investigation clearly showed that this was a murder in the first degree. However, it raised more questions than answers. And he found Russ Farian not guilty. I went back and I called the U.S. attorney, who I know well, and I said, if you don't do something, somebody else is going to die. Because we skipped over it. But what I had learned at that point in time is not only did Betsy Faria, was she brutally murdered, Pam Hub's mother had fallen from her third floor balcony through the vertical uprights on the balcony, not over it. She was on a walker and she was found at the base of her apartment complex, a residential center. Pam Hupp was the last one with her. There was 14 times a recommended dosage of Ambien in her system. Pam inherited money from her. There was an insurance, it was an insurance policy, but it was inheritance and Pam got money. And what was that that Pam said during the police interview? If, if I'm going to go through the process of killing someone, why would I do that for $150,000 when? So they were prepping her for the first trial before the judge had ruled that I wasn't going to be able to get the insurance, but I I'll quote it. The officer said, hey, the insurance, big deal here. They're going to, the defense attorney, this guy Schwartz, he would throw his own mother under the bus if he'll get his client off. So he's going to try and make a big deal about you getting the insurance proceeds. And that's where she says $150,000 in my world is not that big a deal. Plus, if I was going to kill somebody, why would I try and struggle with somebody who's younger and stronger than me? When my mother's worth $500,000 that I get when she dies, I'm not trying to be morbid, but just saying, I'm an insurance person and that's how I look at things. Well, who knew at the time, three months later, 
her being less with her mother, her mother dies and under extremely suspicious circumstances. And Pam comes down and says to the on-duty nurse, don't worry about mom for dinner. She probably won't be down and she probably won't be down for breakfast either. Unfortunately, nobody checked on her till the next day and they found her on the cement block beneath her uh, apartment complex. It was ruled, believe it or not, initially accidental. I met with the St. Louis County police detectives and it's since been changed to suspicious, but so far that's all it is. Now, with all that said, I did call the U.S. attorney and with that information, I told him what was going on. I said, look, Lincoln County is going to do nothing. They still believe this prosecutor, as strange as it is, still believes Russ Ferry had something to do with this and the judge got it wrong. Um, somebody else will die, it needs to be looked into. So. What they did is they agreed to do that, but they called Leah Askey, the prosecutor, and they wanted copies of the discovery, the evidence. I don't know this to be certain, but I was told that she had warned Pam Hupp that there was a new investigation being conducted by the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. So Pam Hupp got desperate. Pam Hupp attempted to reframe Russ Faria. In effect, what she did she went hunting. She went hunting for a human. The first person she tried to pick up was a woman by the name of Carol, Carol McAfee. Carol lived in a trailer park and Carol is as street smart as they come. She pulled up to Carol and asked her if she'd be interested in babysitting. Carol thought to herself, this is very, very strange. But Carol is sort of the godmother of the, that entire neighborhood. So Carol said, yeah, wait a minute, I just need to go in. And while she was going in, this woman said to her, Pam, um, you know, it's no reason, you no need to be in your cell phone or your ID. So that really set her antenna up. So what she did is she went inside and she got two kitchen knives and she put one in her coat and one in her pocket. She got in the car with Pam. As they started to leave neighborhood, Pam started talking about what she actually was going to do. They were doing a dateline experiment. They were going to call 911 and see how what the response time was. And she started to talk to her about it. And Carol said, that's it. No, I, I'm going to get out of the car at this point. Just let me out. So before they left the neighborhood, Carol was out of the car. As it turns out, there were two other individuals that Pam had tried to pick up. And we found out about those after the fact, because about a week later, or 10 days later, she picked up the ma a man by the name of Lewis Gunterberg. Lewis had suffered significant brain damage in a car accident year be years before, and he functioned I think like a, an elementary school kid. He couldn't run. He couldn't really function appropriately. Pam took him back to the house. Pam then went inside with him. She called 911 to conduct this experiment that she, as she put it. And on the phone, you hear her unload the entire contents of her revolver into Lewis Gumpenberger, killing him. When the police arrived, there was a note in Mr. Gumpenberger's pocket to go get Pam take her to the bank and get Russ's money and then kill her and dispose of the body and bring the money back to me, allegedly written from Russ Faria. This, thank goodness, was in a different county called St. Charles, not in Lincoln County. The Lincoln County, I mean, the uh, St. Charles detectives and the O'Fallon detectives who were also involved thought that this was a sham. They looked into it. They called me. I brought Russ Faria and they immediately took him off the list as a suspect and cleared him. Like they, they talked to everybody he was with. They looked at his cell phone. They looked at the cell sites. More importantly, they looked at Pam and they, they looked at Pam's cell site. 
They looked at the note. They looked at all the things that Pam did. They were able to determine that Pam had picked up Lewis Gumpenberger from his apartment complex when she had told them that she was going in a house and a man appeared. He was dropped off by a man looking suspiciously like Russ Faria. Well, none of those things turned out to be true. It took a couple of years, but ultimately Pam ended up pleading guilty and was sentenced to life without parole. After that occurred, ultimately the prosecutor who was in charge lost her reelection bid in a landslide to a new individual by the name of Mike Wood. In between that time, there was a couple of lawsuits. One lawsuit was for a violation of civil rights based upon the shoddiness of the investigation, and that was settled for a few million dollars. There was also a lawsuit by Russ Faria and myself against the insurance company. I can't go into any of the details of that, but let's just say that we were extremely satisfied in the results of how it came out and that the insurance company had no intention of defending the fact that they paid Pam Hop the money. So fast forward, we get a new prosecutor. Ultimately, it turns out he calls me one day. He's looking into the Betsy Faria murder and informs me there was a destruction order of the evidence. That part of the miniseries is actually true. However, there was a keen sheriff in that particular office. He took all the evidence and he moved it to the neighboring county so it was preserved. There are a few things missing, but I sat down with the prosecuting attorney. We went through the evidence and Pam Hop, as of August of last year, is now charged with murder in the first degree of Betsy Faria, and they are asking for the death penalty. Wow. It's a crazy, crazy story. And those who are interested, which I've learned many, it's, it's never ending. It's still not over. And the book that I wrote, uh, Bone Deep, goes into this in as much painstaking detail as anybody could ever want. Uh, and I do encapsulate this. When we talk about the ineptitude or what I've called the uh, Murphy's Law of Legality, I, had a, I have a son. He happened to be 12 years old at the time. When I got the discovery, I took it home. It was the first night and I was at my dining room table and my son sat down with me and eagerly asked if he could help. Well, he had never looked at a police report in his life, but he's a smart kid and he certainly can read. He sat down with me and about 30 minutes into it, he looked at me and he said, all right, Dan, I'm done. I said, okay. He said, I know who did it. All right. Who's that? He said, it was that lady, Pam Hump. And I looked at him, not necessarily in admiration because he was so smart. I looked at him realizing, of course, it's Pam Hupp. I, I, I've known that since I opened this thing up and started looking at him. But the fact that my 12-year-old son looked at me after 30 minutes and said it's Pam Hupp, and the entire police department, prosecutor, and anybody else not only didn't realize it was Pam Hupp, but didn't investigate anything she did, said, or otherwise. They never tested anything against her. So now the case against her is built basically on strong, very, very strong circumstantial evidence and an overabundance of lies, but they never checked her whereabouts. I did that. They never interviewed anybody who she was with, including her husband. They never compared her clothing against anything. And we don't even know what she was wearing because she gave it to the police and no one confirmed that that's what she was wearing that evening. So there was no investigation of any kind whatsoever. And it just, to this day, still blows my mind. And it's probably the number one question I get from anyone who wants to discuss it, which is frankly, everybody I talked to. You do go into amazing detail in the book. And 
as good as they did with the miniseries, and I'm sure it was excellent. I wanted my opinion to come directly from the book. But when you look at the evidence, uh, these pictures, the bloody light switch, the bloody knife, uh, Russ being interrogated, Pam Hutt being interrogated, uh, it's amazing to me that there was even the possibility that Russ would be convicted the first time around. I'll give you a couple quick anecdotes. Um, the first is the there is an audio book out there. The reader of it, who this is what he does, said that as he was reading the book, he wanted to take off his headphones and slam them against the wall. It made him so angry and frustrated. The other one is my partners who lived through this with me. Um, when I got my advanced copies of the book, I signed them. I gave to all the attorneys and staff in the office. And my partners looked at me. That is the audio. I love it. Yeah. Uh, my partners looked at me and they both said, do I really need to read this? I already know everything that happened. Well, they both read the book and they couldn't stop with the questions. My wife as well. My wife, who thought she knew everything, they all came to me and said, I didn't know this and I didn't know that. And how did this happen? And, and how did your head not explode while you were going through this? Um, how did you not get locked up? Uh, I can answer all those things, but I don't know how my head didn't explode and how I avoided being locked up. But uh, So the detail that it goes into, it really is unbelievable. And what I've found that really angers people the most out of everything is Leah Askey, the prosecutor. Yeah. That closing argument that she made in the first trial was the most unethical thing I've ever seen. And I started out objecting because it was just a fantasy. But then I stopped and I realized these are 12 smart people. They heard none of this in evidence and she should be embarrassed to tell it. And they should be embarrassed for her to listen to it. And I knew at that point in time, as certain as I could be, that he was going to be found not guilty. And in effect, her closing argument was that all of the friends were in cahoots. It made me very angry. I got up. I don't lose my cool. Um, there I, uh, I did it. I, I kind of lost my cool that she just accused. I mean, Russ was innocent, but he was the one on trial. These were four people. They, they, none of them had ever even met Betsy. They didn't know her name to accuse them of being complicit in this horrific, heinous murder was so far beyond the ethical bounds that a pro any prosecutor should ever adhere to. Um, and frankly, if anybody wants to watch her, there was a dateline that was just shown and it's still on probably YouTube or Hulu or Peacock. Uh, this is the one that I referred to earlier. It's been, it was the most watched dateline in decades. She goes on in this interview and what a mistake that was. She looks like a fool. She looks like the moron that she was. She was unethical and she still says he did it. And Keith Morrison, I've never seen him get angry. He got angry and it was kind of something to see. Uh, another little anecdote, that cute little 12 year old boy. So they're, they're filming the, uh, as a lot of you people know, uh, I was able to do a cameo as a bartender in the miniseries. So when you watch it, you'll see that it's easy to see. But my son is like, dad, I should be in the story. He made that such a big part of it. And I said, yeah, you should be. I agree with you. But you're a 210, 23-year-old man with a beard. That's not quite going to cut that cute 12-year-old who figures it all out. And he looked at me and he said, okay, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, so it was kind of fun. So, it, you know, ever since the heavy lifting for me was done in 2015, we had the lawsuits that we filed and those went really well. It's all kind of been fun. Uh, 
the miniseries, you know, we, I've had a couple of the cases they talked about making series or movies out of it's never happened. And it wasn't in this particular case too. Renell Zellweger heard the uh, Dateline podcast, which now apparently has been listened to over 30 million times and she couldn't get out of her head. And once she was involved, it was going to happen because she was not only is she an Oscar winner and talented actress, but when you watch her, she embodies Pam Hubble. She nails it. She's wonderful. Um, and they take a tack that I didn't expect. They make it satirical. They make it a bit campy. And what they're doing is essentially, number one, they're differentiating it from every other streamer out there. And they're taking it through Pam's strange, phantasmagorical view on life. So it's really through Pam's eyes. So I got to understand it. And based on the ratings, it worked. I will say that many people I know, they watched that first episode and some of them said it's almost unwatchable. I hated it, but they continued to watch it and people became addicted. And I think NBC is a little bit upset that they didn't make it an eight or 10 part series because there is so much more to tell. Maybe they'll take a look at other scripts based on Joel Short's cases. I do want to bring it back to insurance. I had a question. What was discovered on how the beneficiary change form was delivered? Wonderful question, because I did. That was one of my immediate questions. And the police never investigated. I contacted the insurance company and all they could tell me is it was Betsy was killed on a Tuesday evening. And they said it was imaged into the system sometimes in the morning hours of Wednesday. I said, well, mm -hmm. then why would you pay it? You have no idea. And they, I said, was it received in the mail? Was it faxed? Was it emailed? How did you get it? And they could never tell me how it was received. I sent the subpoena. I got their entire file. And to me, that just screams. Maybe Pam faxed it in or emailed it in that morning. I'm guessing she mailed it the same day she got it. But as we all know, or you, you guys know way better than I do, if it's not received until after somebody's dead, I don't believe it's a policy that's in effect. And that was kind of an argument against Russ having committed the murder because he had been the beneficiary for how many days and Betsy was alive the whole time? Russ had been the beneficiary for 11 years, so almost 4,000 days. Betsy was diagnosed with a terminal illness. Had Russ wanted those proceeds of the insurance policies, all he needed to do was wait. Pam was the beneficiary for four. She was the last one with Betsy and Betsy's dead. I don't know what more than that you need to say for somebody to just take a look at Pam Hub and that was never done. And the insurance company paid the claim, which, and I'm trying to play devil's advocate. I mean, if, if they have a contractual obligation to pay on a life insurance claim and they don't, they get sued. So why not go ahead and pay the claim? Did they cover their bases? The, the insurance company's fallback here was the lead detective communicated with them about three weeks later, said, she's not a suspect, pay her. And they took that as gospel. They conducted a cursory invest investigation. I have all their notes, but Pam Hupp contradicts herself as she did with the police even in the slight interview with the insurance adjuster or whoever it was for the insurance company talking to her. Um, and I get it. Okay. The police say she's not involved, but 
I don't know, just the bare facts in and of themselves would lead me as an insurance adjuster to say, wait a minute, guys, we got to look further. Um, and I think because not, not to minimize the amount of 150000 a lot of death policies are half a million, a million, two million dollars. I'm thinking maybe simply because the amount of the policy and whatever cost of an investigation may have been, they just paid it. I had another question here for you. Based on living through this experience, what's your advice for insurance companies, adjusters, agents? Uh, kind of what are your thoughts? My thoughts are be just had use your common sense. Had somebody with common sense looked at this from the outset, they would have said, this is not, this is not a devious scheme by Pam Huff. It wasn't something that there was a contract or murder for hire or they weren't going to be able to link it to her. This was simply common sense. Hey, you know what? I got to hold off on paying this one. And, and that's really it. It's, if, it uh, if, it sets, if it sets your, what we'll call your spidey sense tingling, take another look. Outstanding. Thank you so much. Joel, if you would, share with the audience a personal story about what your wife said uh, after you told her you'd be portrayed by action star and actor Josh Duhamel. As I had stated earlier, I had always had in the back of my mind, this was sort of my dream. I wanted to be a, an actor. I wanted to be a movie star. And I always thought I could. And uh, I went into practicing law. And there's been a few opportunities for different cases of mine to be aired. And this came about. And uh, Renee Zellweger had announced she was going to do it. And then there was a campaign here from my wife and all her friends. Joel should play Joel. Well, I think we all knew that was not going to happen. However, once they announced Josh Jamel was going to play it, my wife's line, and it is true. She said, you know what? It's better to be the hero than act the hero. To which I replied, well, you know what? You can continue to act the hero in every different story you do. But uh, I'm thrilled with that. I'm thrilled with what she had to say. And I'm, I'm glad the movie got made. And I think it's fun to watch. Joel, thank you so much for your time and insight. I would encourage anyone in the audience, especially those in insurance, to get a copy of Bone Deep and see how truly riveting a story about insurance can be. Thank you, John. It's, it's been a pleasure getting to know you, and I really appreciate you having me. Absolutely. My pleasure, and thanks again. We'd like to thank Joel Schwartz for his time and Ann Pryor at Kensington Publishing for arranging the conversation. If you'd like to get a copy of Bone Deep, visit your favorite bricks and mortar or online retailer. If there's a stakeholder in the insurance industry that you'd like to hear interviewed, reach out to us at info at insuranceradio.com. This episode has been brought to you by LTCI Plans, helping you and your loved ones plan for a secure financial future. To learn more, go to ltciplans.com.